notes available at the Welcome Center if, if they would like to grab one. And we have some treats, I believe, some candy canes left over from Christmas that are still good. Okay, uh, they're still fruity. They're not the minty kind that burn your mouth. So uh, if you would like, um, as an adult, to follow along with notes, those are also available at the Welcome Center. You don't get a treat. Sorry. Welcome to adulthood. Uh, sorry to be the one to tell you that, but uh, the treat is you hopefully receive the message and it does a, a good work in your heart and in your soul this morning. With that said, if you are following along in your Bible or you'd like to follow along with the slide, go ahead and turn to the book of James, chapter 1. We started a new series last week called Together, and we're looking at what James has to say to the church. James is probably one of the first, if not the first, book of the New Testament. In fact, it, I believe it is the, new, the first book of the New Testament that was written. We often read the New Testament, we read the epistles as if they're writing specifically to me, but they're really written for us. In fact, instead of, uh, aside from 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and 3rd John, Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts, the rest of the New Testament is written for the entire church's benefit. When Paul writes most of his epistles, aside from the ones I just mentioned, they are for the whole church to hear and understand. And so when James is writing this, it's not just for the pastor. It's not just for a board member. It's not just for the one individual Christian. Though we all benefit, it is written for us to operate together. Now the overwhelming message of James is very simple. And if you've ever read it, you understand it, you know it well. If you are saved, if you are a Christian, do something. Right? Prove it. Show it. That's the overall message of James. And we're, we're going to see that develop as he begins to build on what we just saw last week. But today we're going to begin reading in verse 13. And James is finishing up this thought that he started last week as he was looking at uh, trials. And now he's looking at the cleansing effect of those trials, those temptations that we often encounter, the purification process that comes with them. If you remember, I said last week, one of those words, that word testing that James uses early on, it's for the testing of metals where you boil them. You get them so hot they begin to boil and you remove the dross and the impurities. So this message today is the church purifies, or the church purified, sorry. Temptation is one of those ways that we are tested and purified. John Bunyan said, believe that as sure as you are in the way of God, you must meet with temptations. Now when he says that, he's not saying if you're in God's way, like, he's, like you're an obstacle or something like that. What he means is, when you are following Christ, when you are in the way of God, when you are going the way he will have you go, temptation is inevitable. But to talk about temptation, we have to acknowledge the fact temptation is not something that just pops up one day and it comes right at you. That's not the way temptation works. Temptation appeals to something inside of you. Temptation only is a temptation because it's something you are craving or wanting or desire. Case in point, what 
and I'll say this again as we go in through the text, what tempts me may not tempt you. What tempts somebody else, you might find disgusting, but they find it desirable because it appeals to them. In fact, it was John Owen who said, temptations put nothing into a man but only draw out what was in him before. That's the way temptation works. If it doesn't appeal to you, it's not going to be tempting, right? I don't like to eat asparagus, for example, or Brussels sprouts. Some of you are nodding your head. You agree, right? I think Brussels sprouts taste like freshly mowed grass. That is not a temptation to me. But a vegan, and I'm not going to, I don't think anyone here is a vegan, but if they saw that, they'd go, mmm, freshly mowed grass, right? Because that's, that's like how we smell cooked steaks, right? I guess that's how vegans operate. I don't know a lot of vegans, clearly, but you get my point. What tempts me may not tempt you and vice versa. So let's see what James actually says. Okay, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived and gives birth to sin, say that right? Each one's tempted when he, I, I just lost my place. Let's start over, all right? Sorry. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow." In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Father God, right now I can already tell I'm a little anxious with this message. And so I just pray, Holy Spirit, you operate, you work. I pray that you hang on every word and penetrate our hearts. I know this message is one of conviction and one that hopefully will spur us towards holiness. And Lord, I pray you do that within us today. In Jesus' name, amen. For the church to truly be together, we have to be holy. That's what we're commanded to do. Peter tells us be holy because he's holy. God says be holy because I'm holy. That is the central goal for us. We want to be holy. We can't do that without the cross of Christ, right? We can't do that without the Holy Spirit sanctifying us and and purifying us. But we want to be holy. And to be holy, we have to deal with sin. But sin, if we're really looking at it from a biblical perspective, sin is a symptom. Sin is just something that comes with something else. We're never going to be rid of it this side of the grave because we're always going to encounter temptation. Temptation or desire is what gives birth to sin. We just read that, right? So if we understand that, we have to understand that to conquer sin, to truly beat it, to truly be victorious, we have to conquer sin at its root when it's still temptation. To put it this way, and this is the one thing I hope you get this morning, we must confront sin before it's old enough to hurt us. 
I'll say that again. We have to confront sin before it's old enough to hurt us. Before sin matures, put it down. While it still exists in the form of temptation, kill it. How do we do that? Well, James gives us three very clear steps within this text this morning. And I hope you can follow along with that. The first is defining temptation. The second is defying temptation. And ultimately, we will defeat temptation. There are many Christians, and maybe I should say supposed Christians, who are living, saying they love Jesus, saying they're in love with the Savior, while secretly being madly in love with their sin, being desperate to get to their sin before being desperate to get to Christ. Mostly that's because they've never confronted their sin. They've made excuses for it, and they've lived with it so long, they don't even understand that it dominates them. The truth is, Christ died to save us from the penalty of sin, but he also died to save us from the power of sin. Romans 6, 7, and 8, very clear about this. And yet, so many Christians still live under the power of sin rather than under the freedom of the cross. Church today... I pray that you can say no more, that today is a day of victory. Temptation may have led you, sin may have owned you, and death may have reigned over you, but if you are in Christ, there is freedom to be had. Be purified today, church. Now we start, we look at defining temptation. Now when I say define, the dictionary is going to say something like the desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. That's not what I mean when I say define something. I mean know it. Understand it. Sun Tzu in the the Art of War, he talks a lot about battles and how to win them. And we battle with temptation, do we not? And he says the key to beating your enemy is really to knowing yourself. Because if you don't know your own strengths and your own weaknesses, you're not going to defeat an enemy who's going to exploit those things. And temptation loves to exploit those things. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me this morning. If you don't understand temptation, that it is going to be something from within you, you're not going to win that battle. So we look again at verse 13. What does James say? Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Look again at those first few words. Let no one say when he is tempted. I want to emphasize that word when, not if. It's a guaranteed thing that if you are in Christ, you will face temptation. When it happens, it's inevitable, church, that when you are on that narrow path, when you are following Christ, when you are trying to be holy, you are trying to do what God has called you to do, something's going to come along and try to derail you. Something's going to come along and try and knock you off that path. We saw this within the first few verses last week. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. They will come. It's when, not if. Now isn't it it interesting 
That the same word for trial used in verse 2, if you, if you have an interlinear Bible, maybe you're able to see this. But in the Greek, the same word used for trial is used here again five times in verses 13 and 14 in different tenses, but it's still the same word, and it gets translated temptation. The root word is piera, and it's a trial, it's a test, it's a temptation. It's anything that may come your way and try to derail your persistent walk in the right direction. So when we understand trial, when we understand temptations, James says, well, then you cannot truthfully say I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Now we can say, knowing that word, we can say that God does put us through a trial or a test. Because we know that from other scriptures. We see that happening even in the life of Christ. James says earlier, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. Well, is he contradicting himself? Is he, is he, does he not know what he's really saying here? We know from the Old Testament alone that God tests his people, do we not? In the book of Job, who brings up Job's name? It's not the devil. It's God himself. Have you considered my servant Job? And then what happens? Job is tested. We know that Abraham is tested on Mount Moriah, Genesis 22. We know Israel's tempted in Judges 2 by the surrounding nations, Judges 2.22, in order to test Israel. He leaves the surrounding nations. Hezekiah is tested. 2 Chronicles 32, by the envoys of Babylon, it says God left him alone only to test him. Testing, by the way, and I want to be very clear about this. Testing is not done because God just really needs to see if you can make it. It is done so we know we cannot make it without him. We know God tests us, but God does so knowing the outcome. He knew, Job would say, when his wife said, let's curse God and die, he says, no, we're not going to do that. Should we accept the good from God and not the bad? God knows the outcome, but we have to understand who's going through that trial, who's going through that test with us. Now you might be saying, well, Pastor Jeff, if it's the same word in the Greek, How can we say that? How can we say God tests us and then say, well, God doesn't tempt us? Well, first and foremost, let's look at Jesus. That's what we should always do anyway, right? When Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray, he tells them specifically to pray this one thing, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's the same word, temptation. It's the same word James uses. So is James contradicting his half-brother here? Is James going against Jesus and what he's saying here? Absolutely not. You understand, God is not leading us into temptation in order to cause us to sin. God's not going to lead you into a trial or a test in order that you might fail. The implication is when you understand that prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The idea is he's still with you. He's still going to be beside you walking through that, through that valley of the shadow of death, right? 
He's with us. He's not going to abandon you and recoil as you sin. He's going to go through it with you that you have victory. God does not, and I want to be, oh my goodness, I want to be so clear about this this morning. God does not save you so he can destroy who he's called you to be. But if God has saved you, he will destroy who you once were. It's called sanctification. Every trial, every test, every temptation we undergo, God allows within our life in his sovereignty that we overcome them and be perfected. It's that maturing work that we saw last week, that perfecting work that he does within us. When James writes in verse 4, and let endurance have its perfecting result. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what we saw last week. That's not easy, is it? That's a hard thing to really grasp. It's a harder thing to trust God in that. It's very uncomfortable. But God does not care about your temporary comfort nearly as much as he cares about your eternal security. And he's not going to tempt you or test you in order to fail you. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Another way of understanding that is God ought not to be tempted or tested. Now, we know somebody didn't get that message, right? Luke 4, Matthew 4, the devil tries to tempt God, tries to tempt Jesus in the desert, and he does this thing. He comes to him, and he, he tempts him. So eloquently, he twists the scriptures, like many do today, he takes this Psalm 91, he takes it out of context, and he, he contorts it, and he appeals to something in Jesus that he can test this out. Like many take the Bible and try to use it as a, as a spell book or try to manipulate God using his own words against him. He says, quoting Psalm 91.11, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus replies, what's he do? He quotes the word of God. He quotes the law. Deuteronomy 6.16, Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God is not going to be tempted or tested and be brought low. And therefore, he's not going to do that to us. But when we suggest otherwise, when we say that he's testing us to make us fail, testing us to cause us to sin, that not only goes against his character, that's not only blasphemy, but that becomes a very convenient excuse for our sins, doesn't it? We can just deny the fact that we have any responsibility and blame God for what we do. It's like Adam. Adam does the same thing in Genesis 3. He tries this. It's not unnatural for a human being to do this. We've been doing it since the beginning. What does Adam say? God comes down and says, hey, did you uh, eat of that fruit? Told you not to eat? And Adam goes, well, only because of the woman you gave me. It's God's fault, right? And Eve, I imagine she's just standing there, jaw on the floor. I cannot believe you just said that, Adam. Right? And what's she do? Same exact thing. Well, it wasn't me. It was that snake you created. That's the implication. That's what she basically says there. 
James makes it very clear. We are responsible for our own sin. We're responsible for our own actions, our own reactions to temptation. He goes on in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Each one, the word there in the Greek, it means each and every one. Every single person is tempted. Jesus was not above being tempted. You are not above being tempted. I am not above being tempted. And the church herself is not above being tempted. Oh, pastor, churches are not tempted. Yes, they are. Oh, yes, they are. Paul specifically deals with a church that had fallen under temptation and given into it. In 1 Corinthians 5, a young man is in an inappropriate relationship with his stepmother, and the church not only allows it, they celebrate it. You think the church wasn't tempted? It's temptation to sin, not just for the man, but for the church themselves. And so he tells them, you've become puffed up and have not mourned. Instead, so that that one who's done this deed should be removed from your midst. In other words, you've stuck your head in the sand. You've given in to the temptation of complacency and permitted sin in your midst. The Galatian churches were tempted into legalism. Paul calls them out. He says, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Churches are tempted today. Churches are tempted all the time. Whole bodies are tempted do we do what's right or do we do what's easy? Do we take a step of faith and build? Do we play it safe, stay put? Do we confront sin within the church? Do we carry out church discipline, which is no fun for anybody, but we're ordered to do that, we're commanded to do that. Do we do, we do those things or do we just hide our head in the sand? Churches all around the world face temptation just as individuals face temptation. And an individual who faces temptation, by the way, and how they react to it impacts the local assembly. I've said that before, or I've said this before, and I'll say that again. You are the best billboard for this church in your community. You're the best advertisement that we can send out into the world, for better or worse. As you call Faith Assembly of God your church home, when people see you, how you tip your waiter and waitress, how you talk to the guy at the gas station, all those things reflect upon where you worship and what you say you love. If a church member chooses to live in moral failure and a church refuses to address it, they drag the name of Christ and his bride through the mud. Some think, well, that's their church. It doesn't have any effect on my church. I would love to introduce you to some of the professors I had at Trinity who were there the semester after Jimmy Swaggart fell. The term was ghost town. And they've been recoiling ever since. You should meet my friend who lives up in Minot, this atheist guy who calls me every time there's a Carl Lentz or a Mike Bickle incident, calls me up, hey, Jeff, who are you sleeping with this week? You think it doesn't affect local church. In fact, the next time there's a moral failing of a big name preacher, how many will come to church and say, I wonder what he's doing. I wonder what they're up to. It happens. That's why we have to follow church discipline and address sin. Now, I believe we should show grace for as long as we could, as long as we can. But when it's hurting the body to the point we can stand it no longer, we have to deal with that. And all of us have this. Either we can conquer it and deal with it in private, or eventually 
it'll lose control and become very public. And it damages us, and I do mean us, the body. We deal with it or it carries us away. That's what James says. When he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Now in scripture, we can trace temptation to three major sources. We have our flesh. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. There's the world. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastfulness, uh, pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And of course, I've already mentioned the devil, who Peter says is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The goal of any temptation, regardless of where it may come from, is to take us from God. It's to remove us from that mighty fortress that we heard about a couple of months ago. To lure us out in an effort to trap us with the bait. In fact, that word in Greek, carried away, it's only one word. It's often used in how to lure big wild game into a trap. When we become enticed, that word enticed, it's actually a fishing term. It means to catch with bait. Peter, ever the fisherman, uses the same word in 2 Peter 2.14. He uses it twice. Having eyes full of adultery and unceasing sin, enticing unstable souls. Having a heart trained in greed. Verse 18 in 2 Peter 2. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by sensual lusts of the flesh those who barely escape from the ones who conducted themselves in error. It's parallel to carry it away. And it gives us this mental picture of what temptation's in game is. To lure us out, entrap us, enslave us, or kill us. But notice that the temptation appeals to his own lust. I said this before, but my lust isn't, or my uh, temptation, or my desire isn't going to be the same as yours. Each and every person has their own lust, their own desire, their own things they want. The wording refers to the craving of every person the craving that, that appeals to their fallen nature. Because what we want when we are tempted is whatever will satisfy our sin nature in that moment, whatever our heart's desire is. That's why one reason I don't really like the Chosen series, because the Chosen Jesus says, what does your heart say? But the biblical Jesus says, well, it's out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, thefts, false witness, slanders. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? This is why we don't trust our heart, but we trust in Christ. We trust in his word so that we know his will and we know him. Because when we're able to discern what the temptation is appealing to, when we know ourselves, we are able to define what the temptation is appealing to in our flesh, our sin nature, we are able to defy it a little better. Once the temptation is defined, we can defy its power over us. And that's the second point this morning, defy temptation. Defying temptation is truly to defy our our own sinful desires or our own sinful lusts. And when I say lust, I should probably clarify this here. When I say lust in the way James is using it, it's simply a desire. It's not the sin of lust, which can become a sin itself, lust can James gives us a blueprint in how to be strategic in our battle. And one thing I would tell you is in your sin battles, be strategic. B 
Be smart about it. If you know, if you know something's going to lead you into a sin, we well, can start by defying it by not going to that thing. Well, this show isn't that bad, but sometimes I watch that and my mind starts thinking about this other thing. Stop watching that show. I listen to this music and it starts me down this path of depression. Stop listening to that music, etc., etc. Verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And there we see the strategy begin to unfold. When sin, oh, sorry, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Lust itself the desire is not the sin. The coveting is not the sin. The wanting is not the sin. But it is what produces the sin. Lust is the mother. Sin is the ugly baby it gives birth to. That's the message that, that James is, is sharing with us and telling us. As a kid, I remember a very famous preacher said something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing here. He said, it's not a sin for a man to notice a beautiful woman. To, uh, to look at her form and her smile and, and be attracted or, or to at least think, wow, that's pretty. She's a pretty lady. But the sin happens when they take that second, longer, lingering look. In the same way, it's not a sin to be hungry, but it's a sin to eat until you hurt. It's called gluttony. It's still a sin. What I'm saying is sin is not a spontaneous act. It's the result of a process. Notice the words James uses. Conceived, gives birth. Well, we know that it takes nine months for a human baby to be born. Some animals take less time. Some take much longer. But the point is, just as sin grows, or just as a baby grows within the womb, sin grows within the heart, within the mind. Temptation is what Proverbs warns us of. He says uh, in Proverbs 7, verses 6 and 7, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice, and I saw among the simple and discerned among the sons a young man lacking a heart of wisdom. What did James tell us last week, if we, were, if we remember the message? What did he tell us if we're lacking? What should we ask for? Wisdom. And this young man, he sees something attractive. He sees this adulterous woman. She's boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not dwell at home, stepping in the street, stepping in the square, near every corner. She lies in wait. Temptation is the adulteress. She looks sweet. She promises pleasure, but she gives birth to that which will take everything from you. He suddenly follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. He does not know that it will cost him his soul. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Another way of interpreting that word accomplished is fully matured. What James is doing, he's, he's contrasting here the birth and maturation of sin with the maturation of the Christian. Death is the grandchild of desire. But as a, as a mature Christian, we should fight it. We should understand and not give in. Know that all sin leads to death. Some will kill you fast, some will kill you slow. And I mean that both physically and spiritually. Sin that leads to death is unrepentant sin. Or the rejection of Christ. It's chronic disobedience to God's command. Lack of love for God and for others. These are all indications a person does not have a saving faith, by the way. Their sin won't be forgiven because there's no repentance. 
We see a good example of this in Mark chapter 4. Jesus talks about the four types of soils. If you remember the Mark series, you remember, well, how could you forget it? It was two years of your life. But if you remember that portion of the series, Jesus says, Others are those being sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for anything else enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. They hear the word, they may even believe the word, and they may even tell themselves they love the word, but the desires for anything else enters in and chokes the word, and it becomes unfruitful. They may convince themselves they love Jesus, but they truly love that which they desire most, and they are always going to choose that. I debated telling this story this morning. About a year ago, my grandmother, Withrow, my mom's mom, passed away. I only have one grandparent left, okay? So if I say my grandpa, my grandpa died, that's the last one I got. If I say it after that, you need to, you need to check on me, okay? <laughs> my grandma passed away, and I, I gave her a funeral. And her sister, my Aunt Cleta, is one of the most stoic people I've ever met in my life. And her husband, Raymond, is equally stoic. And they came to me the night of the visitation, the night before. And they said, Jeffrey, that's what they call me back home. Please don't call me that. I think I'm in trouble when I hear it. Raymond said with tears swelling in his eyes, he said, Jeffrey, can you preach the gospel tomorrow? Now, if you know me, I stick my foot in my mouth a lot. And I did a little bit there. I said, you've never heard me preach. It's very cocky of me, I guess, but. I said, I try to preach the gospel every time I preach, Uncle Raymond. He said, Eric's going to be here tomorrow. And I just want him to hear the gospel once before he dies. It's a son, by the way. And the next day, I gave the message. I preached on 1 John 4. I've never seen my Uncle Raymond full on cry, but his shoulders were shaking. He came up to me after the message. He said, Jeffrey, Eric heard the gospel today. I'm praying. I gave him your number. I hope that's okay. I'm praying he calls you. I've known Eric since I was Linus's age. I did not know about his addiction issues. I didn't know he was a drug addict who's tried rehab several times. And he called me while I was at the Dallas airport boarding my plane. And I stopped and I took time to talk to him. And he said, Jeffrey, I just, I love the message, man, that really hit me hard today, but I, I can't quit. Why? I love Jesus. I can't quit the things that I do. And you may agree or disagree with what I told him next. But I said, Eric, if I can be honest with you, it's because you love those things more than you say you love Jesus. Would you say that's true? He says, well, I, I really do love Jesus, though. I said, not as much as you love whatever it is you're doing. I said, I hate to be the one to tell you that, but you don't love Jesus. You love the addiction. And I could hear him sniffling. And Okay, Jeffrey, thanks for your time. And you might think, well, Jeff, you were really harsh there. You're pretty hard on your cousin. You don't know what he's going through. 
But I am a firm believer that it's time we stop piddling around and playing with sin. And if you say you love Jesus, be about loving Jesus. And if you don't, be honest with yourself and say, I just want to choose my sin. I just want what I want. Demas was a type of guy like that. He said he loved Jesus. He was, he's mentioned in a couple of Paul's epistles. He followed the apostle Paul around. How many of you would give your left arm to get to hear Paul preach just once? And Demas got to hear it many times. And yet, at the end of his life, Paul writes to Timothy, says, Demas, having loved this present age, has deserted me. See, Jesus, Demas didn't love Jesus. Demas loved the world. When temptation arises, we kill it before it has time to conceive and give birth to sin. Jesus says something similar. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better to enter into life, talking about heaven, crippled than having your two hands or going to hell, uh, than having your two hands and going to hell, the unquenchable fire. And he goes on to say, your eye, your foot. In other words, if there's anything that's going to lead you or take you into sin, like your feet, anything you see that's going to lead you into sin, anything you do with your hands that may cause you to sin, get rid of it. Jesus takes sin very serious. I think it's time the church does too. But look what James says next, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived is not a suggestion. It is a command. Why does James do that, though? Why does he say this here? It seems kind of random, doesn't it? I've always read James and thought, why does he insert that there? That'd be a great way to start a chapter, not just throw in the middle of a a lecture about temptation. Well, because deceived there is the Greek word planaste, and it means to be misled, to go wandering away, to be taken astray. Well, what did James warn us about earlier? The one who does not pray in stable faith, the one who's driven and tossed by the wind, the double-minded man is unstable. If we're so arrogant to say, I'm not sinning, God's making me sin, or God's letting me fall into sin, or I'm not doing this, it's so-and-so's fault, we are deceiving ourselves. But look how he finishes that sentence. My beloved brothers, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. What's he doing right there? He's setting an example. He's telling the church, he's saying, look, we have to warn people about their deception. The church has to be aware of any sin that can turn them from the right path, anything that can destroy them. And if we do not go to our brother or go to our sister and warn them of sin that we see in their life, of a deception that we see in their life, or whatever toxicity that may ruin our sister or brother's walk with Christ, if we don't have the guts and the love to go and talk to them about this, how can we call ourselves a church? We don't like it. Personally, I I really hate it when people call me out on my sin. My kids have started quoting my sermons when they catch me saying something. That is the most annoying thing. But praise God, they're listening. And you know what? I am called to be a little bit higher standard than I might be living in that moment. Now we hear people get called out and we say, well, you know, that's none of their business. 
They don't really know what's going on. She's just a busybody. Or we try to rationalize it or we excuse it and we're uncomfortable and we're angry. But you know what? At least they love you enough to pry. They love you enough to try. I don't have any other words that rhyme with that, so we're going to move on. We'd rather hide our sin. Now, let's be honest about this. We'd rather hide our sin, wouldn't we? Not so we can conquer it privately, but if we're honest, it's because we like it and we don't want anyone to ruin it for us. I love the wording the writer of Hebrews uses. I've mentioned this before. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Can't do that if you don't come together, right? Can't do that if we're not united. That word stimulate, paroxysmon, it's one of my favorite Greek words. Paroxysmon, sounds really Greek, right? You can say that in a conversation, people will think you're smart. Paroxysmon, to irritate in order to cause growth. Look at your neighbor today and say, please irritate me. You don't have to do that if you don't want to. But you know, there's another, a lesser known meaning for that word. Sharp disagreement. Paul and Barnabas, when they have their split in Acts 15, this is the word they use to describe their disagreement. It's a sharp disagreement. They really irritated each other to the point they couldn't work together. That's what people do, though, when they want to push you to get better. They're going to irritate you. They're going to sharply disagree. Church, I want to tell you this. I hate North Dakota nice. I really do. That 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. Because there's a time in the church where we have to sharply disagree with one another. There has to be healthy debate within the church. We have to have it out. It doesn't have to get heated. It doesn't have to get ugly. It doesn't have to get mean. It doesn't have to get loud. But it has to happen. If we're refusing to hear one another or listen to one another and we're refusing to go to the word and say, what does it actually say? There's a problem. And there's a problem in the body. But healthy debate is just that. It is healthy. And I want to point out the last thing here on this, and then we'll move on. The key words that I think James uses that we really should focus on here is the term beloved brothers. That debate has to happen in love. It, can, it won't be received if it's not coming from a heart of love. If we're not brothers, if we have no relationship, we've not earned the right to have that debate with one another. But church, if I can be honest with you and blunt, it doesn't matter how much love you have for someone, in some cases, depending on how badly they want to be misled, how badly they want to be deceived, they won't listen. It won't be received. But that's where we pray that the Holy Spirit grip the heart and let others help us defy the temptation if someone comes to you and they say, brother, you know, this isn't right, that's not right, and your attitude is one of get angry, there's a sin issue there because there's no love for the brother bringing it. That's where we pray, Holy Spirit, maybe he's right. 
help me defy the temptation. And once we defy the temptation, then we're able to defeat the temptation. We go to verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Look at that again. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. Gifts like that are wisdom, which he describes in verse 5, which God gives generously without reproach. You know, there are a lot of people, many people, who desperately want what Christ offers and only what Christ offers. Only what he can give them, but at the same time, they find themselves running from him because they don't want him. You want to be whole, you want life abundantly, you want eternal life, you want a healthy marriage, you want to raise children who love and respect you, you want joy in your job, joy in your home, joy in your trials, joy in your life. It's in Christ. It's only in Christ. But don't get sidetracked by the gifts that we miss the giver. The most important thing that he gives us is life. Jesus came so that dead men would be made alive. To take the person who's dead in their sin, dead in their trespasses. This is how Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's not just a good gift. That's the best gift. That's the only gift that's going to matter in the scope of eternity. And it comes from the only being powerful enough, good enough, holy enough, just enough to provide it. The God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the good gift of God. That's the best gift of God. He goes on, he says, coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Father of lights is actually an ancient Jewish term for God. For Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel. He's the one who made the sun, the moon, and the stars in Genesis 1. And therefore, he's the father of lights. Because light originates from him. He's their author. And just as such, there's no darkness in him. Jesus tells his disciples, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. He's not a God of shadows. He's not a God who operates in the dark, in the secrets, though he does have his secret things. But he's a God who operates in the light, and his gifts are good, knowing his goodness, knowing that if we resist temptation, if we deny it and defy its place in our life, what God has is so much greater, so much better. Finally, we get to verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's an example of God's good gifts. James is giving an incredible example. He's stating the fact that God has exercised his will and has brought us forth by the word of truth. Now this contrasts the idea that God might tempt us to sin. Instead, what James is saying, no, he actually doesn't give sin. He gives regeneration. That God does this in us. That God, from his will, does this 
Now, some of you might hear that, and you might say, well, pastor, it sounds like you're talking about predestination. Well, as a professor of mine once said, predestination is in the Bible. You've got to deal with it somehow. So here we go. He is very clearly saying, he brought us forth. So we have to ask, how does James mean that? We may understand that James is writing, he gave birth to us by the word of truth. James is contrasting what God chooses to give birth in us and through us as opposed to what lust or desire breeds into sin and death. So what kind of birth is he referencing here exactly? What's he, who's us? Who's he talking about, right? He could be talking about the birth of humanity. James is a human after all, and so are we, unless you're from really far out of town. That joke landed, okay. He could be talking about the birth of Israel, James being Jewish has the right to say that. Could be talking about the new birth of the Christian through the hearing and receiving of the gospel. Now if that's the case, well then salvation might have more to do with God's will than we would like to think. And we can't just write that off without being faithful to the text. If it's the first option, if it's just humanity, well like I said, that tracks because James has talked about and alluded to God as the creator. Look at the rest of the text, though, the rest of the verse, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The second theory that he's talking about Israel, that can certainly appeal to the Old Testament. It references Israel as God's first fruits, Jeremiah 2.3, Hosea 9.10. But we cannot rule out that third option, that he's referring to Christians. Remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians. He's writing to a church, to the churches, actually. First fruits is a customary New Testament way of describing Christians. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. John writes about this, John 14.4, or sorry, Revelation 14.4. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And he's referring to Christians. The idea that the Christian is the first fruits of a redeemed creation is fleshed out further by Paul in Romans 8, specifically Romans 8.23. Not only this, but also we ourselves, referring to Christians, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The Greek word brought forth, apakison, it's only used twice in all the New Testament, and it's here in James in the first chapter. It means just what it says, brought forth, but it's not a physical birthing. There's another word for that. When James talks about uh, temptation giving birth to sin, it's the Greek word tikte. It's different. Now look at your Bible again. Look at verse 15. Let's go back up just a second. The birthing in that instance, I don't want to lose you on this, okay? So just bear with me. The birthing in that instance, it's a thought. It's a desire of the heart when acted upon becomes physical. Sin is born. That's the birthing. But lust is a heart issue that becomes a physical act in that way. It's a sin that arouses a physical change, a physical reaction toward an inward desire. It comes from the inside out, like giving birth to a baby. 
The sin comes out when we act in some way upon a physical desire. So birthing is a physical thing, but the bringing forth, sin brings forth death. That is a spiritual death that now comes in because sin is brought forth. This is something that's now aroused and acting within us. Well, I go through all of that. Because brought forth is not a physical birth, but a spiritual one. James is referencing a spiritual life in contrast to the spiritual death of verse 15. The word of truth is clearly a reference to the gospel. It's called that at least four other times in the New Testament. And James is going to make a connection later in verse 21, laying aside all filthiness that remains of wickedness and gentleness received the implanted word or word of truth, which is able to save your souls. We're going to get into that next week. But what does that all mean? How does that all tie together? It's simply this. The sin is defeated when we are brought forth by the word of truth. When we receive the gospel, we are saved. When we are under his grace, when we are sanctified and sin no longer holds sway over us, no longer the power of death reigns in our bodies, but through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are free. And if death is defeated, sin no longer controls us, and temptation has lost its influence, then it's lost its teeth. This is something God does within us. It's not something we do for ourselves. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that one man may boast. Sin is defeated because we no longer have to listen to temptation. We no longer have to yield to it. If we are in Christ, the Son has set us free and we're free indeed. Temptation is defeated in the death of Christ on the cross. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back at this time. Why is all this vital? Why does this matter? Why talk about killing sin before it, it grows into that bringer of death? Because Christ did not save you just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin in your life. We shouldn't hear this message and go home and feel a twinge of temptation and go, uh-oh, I'll close my eyes and I'm going to plug my ears and I'm just going to go hide in my, my prayer closet until this blows over. No. Christ didn't die for you to hide from your sin, but to defeat it, to put the dog down. In church, we're together. We don't just face temptation alone. James used the term, my beloved brothers. It's plural. And that's who we are when we're together. Don't face your temptation alone. Call up a brother. Call up a sister. And say, hey, can you just pray with me? They don't have to know all the gory details. Just say, hey, can you pray with me? Can you pray for me? Send a text. Kill it together. It has no power over us. Who are you in Christ? More than a conqueror. You're a co-heir with Christ. You're a child of the living God. If you're in Christ. If you're not, if you've not believed, then all of this means nothing. Sin's going to continue to own you. But there's hope. You say, I do believe. I know it's true. But if sin is still dominating your life, John says, practicing sin, if you're making it a habit, if you still love your sin, 
then you don't have a belief that leads you to loving Jesus more. We're going to close as we sing this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand. But if you're struggling with a temptation, please don't do it alone. And please give victory. Know what it is. Know your own weakness. And defy it. And begin to defeat it.